ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Triumph, uh, Season 2, Episode 3. We just talked about Godzilla Minus 1. Yes, we did. Like 10 minutes ago. Yep. And, and now it's time for this um, probably two, three weeks later, maybe. Who knows? That's right. But yeah. for us, no time has passed at all. That's right. Uh, that is because we are Time Lords. Absolutely. And that's why current me has no idea of the terrible, horrible, very bad thing that Bo has already done by the time that this is aired. And, and, and that is why yeah. actual me has no idea what you're talking about. Right. But I do. Oh, my because, God. Yeah. I am both from the future and in this moment have no idea. I, we, audience, you. you and I both know. We, we know. I have no idea, and now I'm legitimately afraid. <laughs> Welcome back to Triumph. Uh, we are, are going to talk about Boy and the Heron, which has no time travel in it whatsoever. Uh, well... Oh? No, it doesn't. It oh, does no, not. you're right. It does. Well, sort well, of. kind of. Yeah, I mean, a okay, little okay. bit. Well, okay. maybe we should just get into it. Miyazaki has come back again. This is like his fourth false retirement, right? His right. retirement fails uh, persist. Um, I guess it was like Mononoke was going to be a retirement moment. And then the other ones. Spirited you know, Away, the other, maybe? All the other I'm not films. sure. Yeah. Uh, the last one that I recall from my own personal memory was Ponyo. That was supposed mm. to be his like swan song, which is also a gorgeous... Um, Miyazaki uh, Studio Ghibli film. See, the uh, only thing I know about Ponyo was that was that trailer that would play on all of my Disney DVDs <laughs> for like four years. Yes, and I was like nine, ten, eleven, trying to rewatch Cars for the eighteenth time, and I would put in the DVD and it would go Ponyo, <laughs> but yeah. do coming soon to a theater, right. a home near you, or whatever. Yeah, it's it's uh, Ponyo is a gorgeous movie that. Uh, to really love, you have to be either five years old or a 30-something uh, who uh, just wants to watch a, a gorgeous movie. Well, in six more like, years, I'll be able to watch it then. There, there you go. Before then, you, you won't get it. I'm just kidding. Yeah. You should you should check it out, though. Uh, it, is, it is another great film by him. Okay. Okay. Yep. Really? Yep. Very, very, very different from Boy and the Heron. Daniel, take us through... Uh, where, I mean, I mean, set us up for Boy and the Heron here. I, I know you're 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 chomping at the bit for this. So, Boy and the Heron, like you mentioned before, is supposed to be Miyazaki's um, final film. Um, this is a movie that Miyazaki himself that is very close to Miyazaki's heart. Most of the time, Miyazaki's characters uh, for many of his films are pretty distant from him personally. Uh, whether it's because they're they're uh, female characters or because they are um, characters in a fantasy world or or what have you, um, but uh, his the main character in Boy and the Heron is actually loosely based off his own childhood um, and growing up uh, as a child uh, uh, in Japan of World War Two and. Um, while he didn't lose his mother in the same way that the main character loses his mother uh, at the beginning of the film, um, you know, the, uh, in broad strokes, um, you know, his father being distant and working on um, on machinery for uh, the Japanese war engine, like those elements uh, he did connect with and is sort of escaping into into fantasy and into the forest and stuff like that um during his childhood um but the movie is about a boy who uh during the um basically like the tokyo firebombing um loses his mother to a terrible fire and the film has an uh, a wonderfully impressionistic opening of like the anxiety and stress of of that moment and it's it's a an impressionistic style that we haven't really seen very much of in Studio Ghibli. Um, and, you know, a lot of swirling colors and blended lines and like uh, like motion that looks like it's been like slowed down in terms of frame rate, right? Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli, their animation is always very, very smooth. But this was like, it would actually get like choppy in certain areas. 
for very purposeful impressionistic reasons. Um, and so that's what, how the movie opens is very dark in the way that it opens. And it, the, the bulk of the movie is about him and his father moving out to, um, uh, the, the countryside, um, a couple years after this terrible thing has happened. And the, the journey that the boy goes through while he essentially processes, uh, the, the grief of the loss of his mother, which he didn't really was, didn't really process before. And the introduction of his stepmother, who's also like the younger sister of his own mother, which adds an interesting other, uh, you know, element to it because she looks like his mother, but is not his mother. She's Mm -hmm. a different person, but she also wants to be his mother. And, uh, it adds a lot of other weird, um, or I I know there are a lot of other interesting elements into the mix and, um, it, it, he's not happy. He's not a happy boy. Uh, he's not, he's going through it. And in one of the most emotional moments, uh, at the beginning of the film, uh, he gets bullied in school. Um, and his reaction to basically getting beat up and bullied, uh, by these kids is to take a stone and smash it into his temple, uh, causing blood to gush out from the side of his head yeah. uh, in a very viscous, uh, really powerful scene. Um, that, uh, it was actually reminiscent of some of the gorier moments of, um, Princess Mononoke, where you're yeah. like, geez, that, that it, it, you feel the pain watching yeah. the movie. Um, and then the rest of the film, like he's got his head bandaged up, uh, and then eventually he gets a scar. Um, and because after that moment, reality and fantasy start blending together, like it, you know, uh, you know, it's un- like, that's really when the fantastical elements of the movie start taking over that maybe this is like a delusion of the main character. We don't really know. Yeah. Um, but he essentially enters into a fantasy world, um, uh, a la, you know, Spirited Away or Alice in Wonderland where sure. um, the the rules of the fantasy world um, sort of take over and uh, he has to navigate it with all these different strange sights and sounds and make sense of it all. Yeah. Um, while also navigating his own emotional uh, trauma, um, trying to work it out and trying to figure it out. Uh, there were a few things you mentioned that I just want to like touch on really quickly. Like you mentioned, and, and you're totally right about this, the impressionist opening, it's very, very rare for Miyazaki to do, at least as far as I've seen in Mononoke, uh, Spirited Away, Howl's <laughs> Moving Castle, uh, Totoro, those, those would be the, the Ghibli films that I've seen. And in every one of those, as far as I can remember, they don't really use, you know, an impressionist art style as like a primary style. It's often done in backgrounds, would sort of mm-hmm. be my counter. Like he does do a lot of very floaty, beautiful back. In fact, Ghibli's known for that. Um, but not so much as like a primary art style. You also mentioned the mother, and and she's sort of fascinating, I think, because her behavior is sort of erratic and dynamic in the film. In so, you know, some some days she's very cheerful. Some days she's sort of morose and wants to be left alone. Uh, other times she, you know, is sort of indifferent to the child. You see, you know, you see all these different emotions. I think that's a very interesting way to portray an adult, assuming that you're viewing them through the lens of a child. Because mm-hmm. I think adult behavior is sort of unpredictable and strange uh, to a child. And I think the same thing is true for uh, for the father character in mm-hmm. the film, who is also sort of wild and erratic. Um Versus the child who is more serious and level-headed, it not that not that his emotion would be serious in and of itself. Obviously, to be depressed, I think to be grieving mm. is a very serious feeling, but to experience it in sort of a stagnant, you know, still waters kind of a way versus the adults who are very emotive, mm-hmm. I think makes the film really feel like you're viewing it through the lens of the child. I wanted to touch on that, and then you also mentioned sort of the dream world and the fantasy and how does it blend. And I think what's really incredible about, you know, there's this story that happens in Miyazaki film, like in Spirited Away, for example, I think has a very similar arc to it, where Chihiro enters the fantasy world, Mm -hmm. is sort of, has her assumptions about the world challenged, Mm -hmm. learns about greed, learns about avarice, learns about injustice, learns about all these sort of immoral things. 
mm-hmm. and then learns that she can coexist with them and that it will be okay and that she will find a way back home again and mm-hmm. then returns to the world sort of changed internally the world around her has not necessarily been transformed or changed in any fundamental way but she has and i right. think the same thing happens uh, with mahito in boy in the heron right like he learns about well obviously he experiences deep grief mm-hmm. has trauma goes into this fantasy world and sort of learns about can the is the world organized or isn't it is the world chaotic or or, or is it controllable what does it mean to try to control the world you know this this wizard offers him this power of being able to decide being mm-hmm. able to keep the world in perfect order Mm-hmm. And, and 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 he has to find out is that the way it should be or not he has to kind of feel through that and then ultimately returns to the real world again the world externally not having changed so much still being the same but him internally transforming and as i'm saying this i realized is this just the hero's journey is that what this mm-hmm. is is this just an archetypical hero's journey or does the external world have to transform for it to be a hero's journey i wonder what and I'm going to Google this as you maybe give me your take. I, I believe that it definitely is the the hero's journey. And I don't think um, that it has to be something where the external world is then transformed by the journey that the hero goes on. Yeah. Um, although that certainly can happen uh, and often does. But that it, uh, that the journey internally, like that's the, I think the power of a lot of these sort of uh normal people enter fantasy realm and have to navigate fantasy realm before coming out of it yeah it's a way to externalize the internal uh journey that the characters are going through yeah it's like you take their fears and then you you animate them and you uh materialize them uh in creatures in other characters yeah in magic in strange scenarios and situations um and symbolism um, so that the main character can try to sort of psychologically navigate um, what's going on. And that one of the things that pretty much always happens in these uh, types of stories, whether it's Alice and Alice in Wonderland or uh, Chihiro and Spirited Away or uh, the main character in uh, Boy and the Heron, is they have to learn the 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 rules of the fantasy world first to understand how the rules work because if they try to use the real world rules, they won't work. Yeah. And then through that understanding, they gain power and the tools to start to manipulate the fantasy world. Sure. Um, and then, and then to uh, take agency within the fantasy world so that they can, uh, so they can do things. Yeah. Um, and go through their journey. Yeah. Um, I mean, this and, is, this is Tron. This is Narnia, right? Yeah. I mean, th- this is, this is what happens. Right. They get armed with that knowledge and skills. They then use those skills to to navigate the and slay their demons or or uh, negotiate with them or whatever it is that they need to do. Yeah. Um. So, so that they can uh, come out of it stronger. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's their journey. But it's interesting because in thinking about this, I was also trying to figure out: well, is it all Ghibli films that follow this path, or is it has it just been a notable few? And so and a contrast, I think, would be which would be Mononoke, which I know you have said in the past is your perhaps your favorite Ghibli yes, film. I don't know is, if it yeah. still holds that title after mm. Boy and the Heron. I'm sure that it's, it does. It's definitely up there. Man. It's still up there. I, it's a fight. It's a fight. It's a fight between those two. Boy well, and the Heron is either one or two, depending on how I'm feeling. And 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 my uh, my my memory, if it's serving me well enough. Mm-hmm. Mononoke stands in stark contrast to this uh, internal change hero's journey, such as Spirited Away or Boy in the Heron, in the sense that the external world is deeply affected by the actions that play out. We right. sort of have this this big environmental conflict, uh, this mm-hmm. idea of of evil spreading um, physically and, and philosophically. I wonder, you know... And, and Ashitaka it, mainly stays the same throughout the whole film. Yeah. Like, he kind of... He's more just the observer in navigating um, the the events that are playing out in the film, right? Um, and he, he, you know, he takes action and he does have to come to terms with a lot of different stuff. But like, it's not like he goes through a big psycho psychological revelation. Mm-hmm. He mainly stays the same person 
at the beginning of the film as he is at the end of the film. Yeah. Um, and that's okay. Like that's, that's just the story that they're telling with that movie, but it's really good. Yeah. 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 And I'm trying um, to think of uh, Totoro sort of rides the line because it's never fully established whether the fantasy world they inhabit is part of the real world or not. You know, it's not like they step through some portal. They sort of just begin to encounter things. Right. And the, 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 the adults in their worlds also have a, a, a playful acceptance of the more fantastic elements of the kids' stories. Yeah. You know, where they don't, I don't recall a moment. It's been a while since I've seen the movie, but I don't recall a moment in which an adult said, no, 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 none of that stuff's real. That might, that, that, oh, that's you're all that, you know, dreams again, you're, or you're, yeah. you're distra- no, like there's a sense that the dad is sort of like playing with them. He's playing into their fantasy. He may not really believe it in the way that they believe it, but he's he's playing with them in the way that well, many adults, um, uh, parents maybe play with their children when their children are having an uh, um, yeah, you know, an imagination game, you know, of course. and they're kind of engaging with it and then adding on to it, you know, um, adding their own layers of like you know childhood magic and mystery to it. Yeah. But then like the grandma or the the housekeeper, not grandma, the housekeeper in that movie is like almost like like feeding them even more of the fantasy and really sort of playing it up. Definitely. Um and and that and really and that is also kind of beautiful in the way that it plays out. Oh, one of the other things I noticed about uh Boy and the Heron that was that stood out particularly to me and i don't know if this has been true for other ghibli films because i haven't watched any other ghibli films in the theaters let's boy and the heron but something that i felt very intensely watching boy and the heron was the use of of silence like mm-hmm. repeatedly you know i would hear the people in the row behind me or the people in the row in front of me or i would be sort of distracted by popcorn or soda or a, a bag of chips crinkling in a way that I wouldn't during Godzilla, for example, which has lots of ambient, uh, you know, sub bass uh, frequencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I don't know if this is particularly more or less than he has used silence in the past, but I, I deeply enjoyed, uh, you know, Miyazaki's willingness to sort of let moments pass and as you sort of fall between them and, and, and you sit with the stillness and, and have to experience it as an audience member and, and become more patient as the story unfolds. Did, is this something you noticed when you were in the theater as well? Or is, or was my theater just particularly noisy? No, I, um, I definitely see where you're coming from with like, uh, him channeling the, like the quiet moments, uh, in the film. I think that's something that Miyazaki does a lot. And mm. Studio Ghibli does a lot. Um, those beautiful moments in between moments, you know, that, that there is sort of um, an importance to uh, those beats. Um, I will say that Boy in the Heron is the only Miyazaki film that I have seen in theaters okay. where it was the first release of that film. Yeah. So I've seen Spirited Away, and I've seen Kiki's Delivery Service, um, and I've seen Arietti and a couple other ones in theaters but it was always like a oh but this is like a re-release because we're excited because it's a yeah yeah yeah. yeah. so like most of the audience had already kind of seen the movies before they'd gone into the theater so there wasn't like a baited silence if that makes sense there were pregnant silences where people were waiting to see like we don't you know like where it was novel you know it was fresh silence. It was just a weird way to talk about it, I guess. But yeah, 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 yeah. It, I, I definitely had that that experience too, where the silence um, was almost more impactful because we didn't, because it was in the moment, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And again, that's what one of those things that he's really, really good at uh, doing and mm. really making the most of it. Uh, and Boy and the Heron definitely utilizes a lot of that. Um, I do want to talk about the, uh, we talked a lot about the boy. Let's talk a little bit about the Heron though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the uh, Heron. Did you, oh, yeah. oh, 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 uh, oh, very important, very important, uh, 
uh, a distinction we sh- we should have gotten out of the way at the very beginning. Did you watch? And I intentionally did not ask you until today, so we could find out in this moment. Mm-hmm. Did you watch the English dub, or did you watch the Japanese language with English subtitles? Uh, I saw the English dub. I did too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Mainly- I was I was secretly hoping that we would have different. We would have seen different ones. Well, um, I. W- I'm sort of of two minds. Like usually, I do prefer sub uh, subtitles, Japanese or sorry, English subtitles with Japanese um, voices. Yes, me um, also. But with this film, I was going to see it with my wife and Ashley, and she tends to prefer the dubs as well. Uh-huh. And then on top of that, the Miyazaki uh, dubs are usually pretty spectacular. Yes, right? yeah, exactly. So it's not like the problem with a lot of other dubs is the the voice actors that they get maybe don't always highlight yeah. it or too much of it gets um gets or the creators aren't directly involved or yeah. and so like actual like story beats actually get changed yes. based on the dub to make it more palatable you know yes. uh, to american audiences um, Precisely. but but um the uh ghibli films are usually pretty good about not doing that and usually the dubs I, are very good and I had the exact same thought process. And of course it would make sense that you would as well, that, you know, this is a star studded cast. You know, I gotta, I gotta hear Mark Hamill. You yes. know what I mean? I mean, if, yes, if, as if, the if, wizard, of course, I, I even wanted to hear Robert Pattinson who, uh, uh, you know, is significant in my household as my wife is a big twilight fan. And, uh, and as I am a big fan of the Matt Reeves Batman movie, probably one of my top four movies of all time. So we wanted to hear Robert Pattinson. We wanted to hear Mark Hamill. Florence Pugh, I thought, did a great job. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. probably my favorite performance in the film. Um, a, a lot of really, really cool. So okay, so you, so we both saw the English dubbed. Yep. And now that we were going to talk about the heron. Yes, the heron. So, um, of course, when we first uh, get introduced to the heron, it's just a blue heron, right? But Ooh. it has a sort of like, um, you know, certain alien aspects of it, but if Again, the detail. But you the mean like the human nose inside the beak? Is that the alien aspect you're referring to, or uh, no? Before he gets knocked in the head, and the fantasy Ooh. elements start coming out, like yeah. just the way, like so. Again, this is like the super observational elements. Like you can tell they did their, you know, they studied the way that these animals moved mm, before they even yeah. began animating them. And the herons with their sort of like you know long stalky legs and. They have like a unique gait to them, like to a child, like their movements are, and honestly to adults as well. Like they're just really fascinating to watch the way that they yeah. sort of move and an almost like they, they have a, almost a strange quality uh, to them. And and then as the fantastic elements come in, where the like the creature starts speaking, and then human teeth start appearing, and yes. then like you get the. The uh the hu- like the bulbous nose that comes out of oh the my mouth gh like goes through this transformation. Man, really Dude, one really thing about creepy. Miyazaki, he's gonna go crazy when he draws a nose. I mean that yeah. nose is gonna be honking. Yes, yeah. He loves big honking noses and make like giving them warts and like oh, oh. Yeah, yeah. And he uh it what's really cool about the way that they do the heron. I love the heron, by the way. Dave love the heron um character yeah um and there's because it the way the transformation of it of how it goes like first off the the main character the boy he is fascinated by the heron yes and then he's afraid of the heron yes and to the point where uh he constructs a weapon to kill the heron Mm. um with a bow because he wants to protect uh, himself and which I want to come back to that bow. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to put a pin in this now. Keep going. Uh, he constructs the bow, and he like gets almost like possessed with um, with this motivation to to craft a weapon that can kill the heron, um, and that's almost like gives him a reason to live in a weird way because yeah. like he kind of goes through like this dark, depressive. Um, phase where like he concusses himself um he's uh he's bound in bed um and then like the fear of the heron 
like basically gives them like a dark reason to live, but it gives them a reason to live. Well, it gives and, him a, it gives him a, a, an adversary he can actualize, right? Something not, he can fight, right? It's not an internal fear. It's not some mm-hmm. internal antagonist or social antagonist. It's very clear. This right. bird is bothering me. Mm-hmm. How well, can I solve this problem? It, the, the bird, I think, represents death. Um, and I think that's how he sees it, as kind yeah. of like a grim reaper figure, especially at the beginning. Sure, preying on like, him. Right. And yeah. is very haunting and frightening and Circling. creepy circling and haunting him and um you know he he makes this weapon and uh he his first use of the weapon is an abject failure but he's like he's he's refining the weapon as he's because he needs to defend himself and um eventually he um um fletches i think that's the right word the arrow with uh the um feather of the heron okay which ends up being the heron's uh kryptonite as we'll yes. find out later yes um his seventh feather right yes yeah um and in his next confrontation with the heron and he fires the arrow um and we find out that the 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 feather gives it like a tracking quality to it that the heron can't avoid um and he shoots him in the beak and then there's almost like a, oh, all of a sudden, it's like a, if it bleeds, we can kill it moment. <laughs> it's almost like, like by mortalizing the heron, the creature, then like the heron starts kind of being more like boisterous and like tries to be even more threatening. But the yeah. power of the creature over the main character essentially dissolves into nothing. Dissolves, And he's like, yeah. he's not afraid of him anymore. Yeah. And of the cre- and he becomes more like gnome like in his appearance and more yes. and a lot less frightening, right? Yeah. He no longer um is something for for the main character uh to be afraid of. Yes. Um and the the transformation from like horrifying thing I need to kill because I don't know what else to do yes. to oh, this is just some dumpy guy who's trying to be scary, but he's totally not. I have no reason to be afraid of this thing anymore. Yeah. Um, and then the wizard um, declares that the heron needs to be, uh, you know, his guide and his ally. Right. Yes. And so they have this sort of tense relationship where um, the heron um, has can't fly anymore. He's been, he, he, he can't, as long as he's got this hole in his beak, yep. um, it takes away his ability to be a heron. And he's yep. just a guy in a heron suit, basically. <laughs> um <laughs> But, and the main character kind of treats him like a kind of annoying and like not, not somebody to take seriously anymore. Sure. And he ends up like dismissing all the allure of his early advice uh, and getting himself into more trouble. Well, and the allure of, of the heron, I think was the sort of magical nature of it. You know, Mahito is curious. What is this Mm -hmm. thing? Mm -hmm. He discovers the fantasy world, you know, stepping into the space rock. And mm-hmm. then immediately this becomes the new object of fascination. And the hair, it is old news at that right. point, I think, right. is, is what I, happens mentally. I, I can kill it. So therefore, I've solved it. I no I, longer I'm need not to worry interested about anymore. It. Yeah. Oh, right. it doesn't. Oh, man. I need to go mm-hmm. find a new toy to play with. In a very reductive way, that's sort of the emotion. The, I, I love your idea you mentioned a few minutes ago that perhaps the hair represents death. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that. that. If that works, I think it does, then one of the ways that that metaphor might extend is in the the interaction that occurs when Mahito repairs the heron's beak. Mm-hmm. Sort of this fascinating moment where the heron, having been re-empowered, immediately reverts to this malicious state. Mm-hmm. And he yep. goes, now I'm going to abandon you and yes. leave you forever and you're a fool. It's very like caricature of evil right mm-hmm. um and then the facade starts to break again he you know the the the, the seal comes loose mm-hmm. right and immediately they jump cut in a very rare <laughs> you know moment of using a cut to tell a joke i don't mm-hmm. think i've seen this you don't see this very often in a ghibli film but using a cut to tell a joke immediately mm-hmm. they cut to the hair going oh, a little bit more to the left right, yes. maybe just a little bit more 
and fix it's the thing so I can be evil again. <laughs> so I can be evil again. And 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 I actually I really love it sort of brought a tear to my eye, the subtle grace, the subtle beauty of Mahito obliging. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, they sort of brush over it. They use it as a humorous moment. But something really beautiful happens where, you know, this heron showed you its true colors. You helped it. Mm-hmm. It did not care and was ready to abandon you. Mm-hmm. And then you helped it still. Yep. There's sort of, I mean, there's something there. And I think if the heron is death, mm-hmm. then I think what that moment represents is Maito coming to terms with the nature of life and death. Mm-hmm. Realizing, you know, in the story world, realizing this heron is always going to be this way. And mm-hmm. that's okay. Yeah. That doesn't mean that it is not still my ally. Right. That doesn't mean that I do not still support it or help it or heal it. Mm-hmm. Right, because I am a traveler, and this heron is a traveler, and we are both on this road together. Mm-hmm. And whether it is malicious towards me or not, I am in control of my actions, and whether I am a helpful person or not. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but if the death thing is there, then I mean, I think that's beautiful. I think that's absolutely wonderful. Yes, I know. I, I very strongly believe that that is what, if not death, the Grim Reaper, or like the idea of like the you know, the the force that guides souls to death, whatever yes. that means, right? Is that, that is the representation of the heron. That's what the heron is supposed to represent. I feel very strongly that that was um, intentional. And um, I don't want to put too much of a like parallel. Oh, um, the heron is definitely the grim reaper, for the way that we understand it in the West. Well, that's what I heard you say. You just said it yeah. on record. Yeah. You're writing so, it down. I'm pretty much just a Western reductionist and I'm terrible. Yeah. My uh, next, actually, I, I've decided my next uh, D&D campaign, I think, needs to have a uh, Grim Reaper in the form of a heron. I think that would be... Uh, there you so go. thank you for that. I appreciate that. <laughs> there you go. No worries. No worries. Um, but I do believe that that is what he is uh, ultimately supposed to represent and that um, the main character... Uh, making that relationship with the heron and it always having like an antagonistic element to it right, is important because he doesn't change the heron per se, right. but he does make the heron an ally. And by saving the heron when he didn't have to, yeah, like he creates a bond with it. And at the very end, the heron says something like, this doesn't make us friends. You know that, right? Like, we're, I'm going to continue to pursue you. Right. And he, and he expects the boy to be like, oh, well, okay then. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, he expects the boy to be like, oh, really? Oh, well, then never mind, I guess. Like, he expects right. that to somehow change the boy's mind. I, as we're describing this, I realize there's a very similar dynamic between Chihiro and the No Face in Spirited mm-hmm. Away. Yes. Where. Yeah. The no-face hides its true nature from Chihiro. Mm-hmm. Chihiro learns its true nature, mm-hmm. but does not stop caring about it anyway. Right. Right? This is sort of the, the beautiful optimism. I mean, this is, this is Miyazaki's portrayal of the optimistic spirit of the child. Mm-hmm. Right? That a child would believe that a thing could still be good, even if it has proven itself to be completely evil. Mm-hmm. This is a very realistic depiction, I think, of, of childish nature. How yes. often does it does a child uh, hear that an adult has committed some horrible, atrocious deed and, and still think, well, I hope things are okay for them anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Versus an adult who would say, oh, they're screwed. That's it. Yeah. It's over. I'm not yeah. I'm never trusting them again. So yeah. it's sort of lovely to see this, this hope uh, portrayed in any Miyazaki film, I think. Well, but it's also, it's a learned hope. Like the main character gets wounded by... Huh? Oh, I think it's I do. the opposite. I think it's innate. Well, the hope is, yes. But how how they learn to relate to that huh. is what is learned. Okay, okay. So, like, when, he, when she blindly just gives the, the, the no-face all of the stuff that it's wanting. Right. It yes. becomes ridiculously monstrous and de- uh, devastating and destructive um, until it... Um, you know, until it's stripped of its power. Yeah. Um, but like you said, he continues to keep it around, even though 
everybody else is like, don't let that creature in. It doesn't, right. it needs to be shut out. Yes. Um, but like, but he's, she still needed to learn how to negotiate with that, with that being, how to relate to it. Yeah. Um, the, she was still willing to nature, try. She was still willing to try. And, but she also didn't like uh, really change its nature. She just learned how to deal with it. And I think yes. that's what's super important too, is it's, um, it's not a, um, oh, well, just uh, forgive everybody for all of their sins and, and like sort of hippy dippy thing. It's more that, yeah. no, like, you know, there are forces in this world that can hurt you. Yeah. But you, it's not about killing them or defeating them yeah. or, or whatever. It's about learning to live in harmony with them, even though they are, they have the capacity to, to hurt you. And if you yeah. don't learn how to live in harmony with them in a real way, then you'll never, you'll never become, you'll, you'll never, you'll live in fear or you'll live, um, yeah. um, with a, with a desire to, um, exert power or whatever, whatever the morale is. Well, this is, I mean, this is perhaps the very heart of the film, right? I mean, we talked mm. about this at the beginning, this idea where you have a hero's journey where the character is internally changed, mm -hmm. not necessarily externally, but internally, I think. With Spirited Away, you have this idea of moving away from home and how that can be isolating and confusing, which, relatively speaking, is a lower stakes emotion than the very intense emotion of grieving your mother, which mm -hmm. is what Boy and the Heron portrays. Perhaps, and I'm not a therapist, right? I'm not a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. I am just a human who lives. But perhaps this is the very nature of how you heal from grief, which is not that the conditions would change, not that the world would somehow be altered and bend to become better, mm -hmm. but that you would simply grow, that you would find peace with it, that you would become resilient in a way that you were not before. And mm -hmm. that this is how we persevere. And so this is what Mahito learns to do. Right. Uh, you know, a uh, great uncle, grand uncle, wizard character played by Mark Hamill, Mm -hmm. um, you know, presents Mahito with this opportunity. He says, this world is going to fall apart unless we control it. Uh -huh. We are going to very precisely position these blocks just so, so uh -huh. that nothing tilts or falls and everything is balanced and level. And if we can do this, then the world will be okay. This mm. world, the other world, all of the worlds. And we have to. Because the world does not govern itself, right, is the assumption. The mm -hmm. world should not govern itself. And we are not going to even try to find out because that would just be a disaster, right? No way. Mm -hmm. And Maito having, you know, perhaps maybe from having interacted with the Heron, mm -hmm. but also from interacting with uh, Kiriko, I think, has learned perhaps that that chaos happens... And that the answer is not to prevent the chaos from happening, but to find a way to operate within it. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, I think a good, a good, uh, what are those little white marshmallow creatures called? Oh, um, in, in Boy in the Heron. The, mo I... the moo, the moo, moo, the, yeah, I know what you're talking about. The, the sort of like child spirit things yeah well so they so this is a great like they float into the air mm -hmm. to go it per perceivably to become humans born into the human world they right. look like little child spirits and so they float in the air and then there is effectively a massacre mm -hmm. where half of them are eaten by pelicans mm -hmm. and then the pelicans are defeated by himi who is mm -hmm. a fire spirit but then in the process of Himi defeating the pelicans, she burns a percentage of these, what are essentially child human spirits. It's very grotesque back and forth. Yeah. And Mahito watches this and he is like shocked and then shocked and then shocked again. Mm -hmm. And I think he turns to Kiriko and he's like, but, but are, they're not going to be okay. That's not okay. We have to stop this. He sees this as very black and white. You do yeah. no harm or you do harm. Mm -hmm. And what Kiriko implies is that this is the way, you know, this is the greater good. This is how it has to be. You cannot prevent all evil. Mm -hmm. And to attempt to do so is not the right way. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think because of this lesson and also because of his lesson with the hair and learning to let things be how they are mm-hmm. through those lessons, he is then able to say to great uncle, we don't need to try to control all of this. We can't. Right. Right. If we do so, it will not make the world better or worse. It will only be a feeble attempt to modify the a condition that the world is actually in, which is that it is chaotic mm-hmm. and that we cannot control it or manipulate it, but that we can in ourselves find some inner peace. You know, he, he admits, he says, this scar is, you know, was self-inflicted, right? He says, I, I have this turmoil within me, but here I am, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, I think I just figured, I think I didn't, I, I think I just understood the film just now in real time. There you go. Hey, it took me, it took me a few days to get there. <laughs> But yeah, no, I think I think you you hit the nail on the head. Um, I think it's a big part of it for sure. And um, like his relationship with Himi, who is like a also a um, like a child version of his mother. Yes, um, and that she wields fire, yeah, which is what killed her. Like she wields yes. the power of what killed her, right? Because that's what that's what. Kirik is the main character named Kiriko. Am I getting that right? No, Mahito. Mahito. Sorry, I get. I have a hard time with the names. I, That's I okay. With that we don't, we don't speak Japanese. That's fair. Uh, Mahito. Um, he. That is the transformation that, like, so for Himi to take on the to wield the power of the what essentially caused her destruction. Yes. And then to be cavalier is the wrong word, but like, it's not like she struggles with the usage of her power. She's at peace with it. She's at peace with it. Right. Um, And like, but he sees firsthand the very first thing time that she uses her power. Like he witnesses the the destruction of that power. And um, like, he has a problem with it because it has um, unintended consequences. Like it, it it leads to like deaths beyond what she's trying to like she just is just trying to hurt the the pelicans yes um, but she ac- accidentally or incidentally also hurts um the uh the child spirits but that there's sort of like an inevitable relationship the choice is either do this and some of them will die or i do nothing and they all get eaten yes right and that that's the choice that she has to uh, has to make, and she's comfortable uh, with that choice. But she's also stuck in the underworld. She's mm. stuck in this fantasy world. Uh, in this fantasy world, also because you know it's his mother, and his mother is dead. Like that's a boundary that she can't cross. Um, you know, I think is also important as well. Um, but like he needs to, he needs to form that relationship with his mother because he'll ne- he'll, he won't overcome his grief about the death of his uh, mother if he doesn't also um, come to terms with what killed her. And yeah. what better way to do that than to see his own mother like embody the force that killed her and yes. like, learn and build a new relationship with his mother that's one of equality almost in terms Definitely. of age. Right? It's not mother, the, 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 the parent that protects me and, and who is vastly more powerful and influential than i am it's right. my mother as a child as i am as well and building a a, a symbiotic relationship with it's her. the nature of her right yeah. she's in this purest form like this is her spirit this is her personality this is just who she was not mm-hmm. that she is some mature older figure not that she is some less mature younger figure right but here we are as equals and it sort of levels the playing field in terms of philosophically who mm-hmm. they are it's gorgeous i mean it's yep. it's it just feels effortless and lovely and so compelling. And, and the important character of um, he the the caretaker as an old lady who he then meets as a adult woman. Yes. Where and so like he's forming a new relationship with uh, with the caretaker where he's seeing her and maybe or like her most vital like yes. time where she's kind of she's sort of rough and adventurous and she's lived a hard life. She has Ooh. a she has a um, um, a similar scar to he, that he does, right? Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that children oftentimes have a hard time when they see, especially people who are much much older than they are, is that they don't they 
they don't see them as someone that they can relate to. Jeez. Right. And it's like by, by making that person, the person that is his protector, but also has uh, the same scar that he does. It's yeah. like all of a sudden, like he, he's brought the, the older character close enough uh, in age now where he can relate to her and see her uh, like accept her wisdom and her power and her knowledge and her ability in a way right. that he couldn't do when she was uh, a, in his mind, a doddering old lady who was just too, maybe too controlling or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I and like, I, okay. Oh, go ahead. No, that's, that's it. I just, I feel like that's an interesting uh, twist on the, uh, on the relationship uh, as well. Yes. That's, that's all I was going to say. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I yeah. have three different thoughts. Mm-hmm. One is that I want to talk about uh, uh, imperfection and this small mm-hmm. moment. Um, uh, but but before I before I mention that, I want to ask you like like Kiriko, you know her her sort of form in the fantasy world, her purest uh, form. You know she's like twenty something, thirty ish. Mm-hmm. Um, but Himi's, you know, youngest purest form is is sort of a child, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I wonder if I were gonna. If you, if you or I were going to fall into that world, I'm trying to think, I feel like my, like my spiritually purest, like my most optimist form, I, you know, I was definitely seven, you know, like <laughs> I was definitely seven, eight. It's all been downhill from there. You know, if I was going <laughs> to jump into the, the boy in the hair and fantasy world, like I would be a seven year old boy for sure. I wonder if you feel the same way or if you feel like you're in a really good spot right now. I feel like I'm in a, a pretty good spot right now. I've always felt like someone who, uh, this is, um, I've always felt like as some as I've gotten older and I've gotten wiser, I've actually kind of gotten more um like comfortable. Like I was never I was always an awkward kid. I was honestly an awkward young adult. I'm still yeah. an awkward uh, adult adult, right? But I it's been a progression of of less awkwardness through time. <laughs> um and so I feel like I'm probably going to peak at like 75 and I'm okay <laughs> with that. A uh, wise I'm old wizard. Is I'm gonna be yeah, I'm gonna be a wizened old man who's gonna really have his shit together at that point. Really? Uh but um but what I was actually gonna say about the 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 fantasy world is I feel like it's an echo of when those characters entered the fantasy world when they did. Right? Oh so good like point. they're it's not necessarily about when they're at their purest, it's about when they fell into the portal. Right. And then when they, they needed, there. When they needed to go through this journey. Right. Yeah. And then even the heron at the movie at the end of the movie says, You remember anything about that world? And he's like, Yeah, I remember. And he's like, Oh, well, don't worry, you'll forget. Yeah. You know? And so I feel like that's also what we're seeing is we're like in some way, like it's like an echo of their past selves or their past yeah. soul. Like it captures who they were at that moment when they were at that age when they needed right. to go on that journey. It's like it makes a duplicate of them and then sends the original back. And then it holds on to the duplicate eternally at whatever that point in time was. Right. And then they just continue to function within that world, uh, whatever yeah. role they take on. Uh, the uh, the moment I wanted to come back to was, you know, you mentioned when he encounters the heron, he sees it as an adversary and he begins to construct very elegantly and sophisticatedly. He constructs this makeshift bow and arrow situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you pointed out, you know, using the weakness of his adversary very cleverly in the weapon itself. The moment I'm thinking of that has to do with the bow and arrow has nothing to do with using it or constructing it. It has to do with, with sort of this critique, uh, uh, that, uh, Kiriko makes the, the housekeeper that joins him in the fantasy world, uh, critiques it and says, you know, if you wanted, we could get you a real bow, you know, mm-hmm. we could get you a really nice, you know, a, a, a re- basically a real deal situation. I mean, we could get you equipped for real because she's kind of the troublemaker. She likes to, mm-hmm. you know, mess with the rules. And she she put a real weapon in this kid's hands if the kid, you know, gave her enough, maybe paid her a, a coin or two to do it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, what I think is so fascinating is Mahito rejects it. And I think he rejects it for two reasons. Number one, I think he rejects it because the importance of the conquest over the Herod has less to do with the fun of it and more to do with the authenticity of it. Like he personally is invested in this particular method that he's crafted and he wants to carry it out on his own. He's on his own journey. 
But number two, I think that moment is also a really clear philosophical stance against this idea that you have to perfect everything. This mm-hmm. idea that you have to have just the right tool or just the right resource or just the right piece of knowledge to go on your journey. Yeah. And I think this is one of the early seeds that leads to Mahito rejecting the grand uncle at the end. Because mm-hmm. the grand uncle presents this idea of perfection. And Mahito says, that's not what we need. We need imperfection. We need the chaos. That's how life happens. Right. right. So I feel like the bow moment is a really early indicator of this, this tilt towards the natural order of things versus trying to control and optimize everything. Yeah. Um, so so I, I sort of came back to that moment as a really interesting touch point. And in all of its perfections, you know, this bow that Mahito has crafted ultimately is a very elegant thing in its own right. More so through the fact that he has done it uh, than anything else. And, um, you know what? There's a huge part of this film that we have not talked about at all. And this is maybe one of the more rambunctious elements, one of the more chaotic elements, perhaps the villains of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, what's up with these these murder parakeets? I was hoping you were going to ask about that. Uh, yeah, so... I mean, how do we? How do we? First of all, Dave Bautista hilarious, but how do we interpret like if the Herod is death, you know, and it's a film against chaos? Then what are the what are the murder birds? So I believe that the the birds are. They are trapped in this sort of underworld, uh, like uh, so many of these other creatures are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that the that the heron is capable of uh, traveling between the two worlds freely as long sure. as he can fly. But that's right; like ultimately, that's the secret, right? Is you have to be able to fly, and you can't just fly. You have to fly well enough to be able to fly high enough to cross the boundaries between the realities. The right? keyboard sound you're hearing is me typing in tan parakeets fly into Google. <laughs> well, they can. That's the thing. They can, but these parakeets can't. They have given up their ability to fly for the sake of industry so that they can control the uh, industri- the uh, the world that they are currently in. So rather than soaring and entering into like maybe a, a higher level world or a, a better world for themselves. They would rather sacrifice their ability to fly and use the tools of machinery to, to control the world, uh, the the realm that they are currently in, mm-hmm. but they are serving a fundamentally flawed master, the master of the wizard who's using the parakeets to exercise his control. They are trapped. He talks about, the relationship, hey, you gave us all of this industry, all this ability to do stuff. Like, you promised us we would get to control this world at the end. And now Dude. you're going to give it to some kid, right? Yeah. And then that's the betrayal of the, like, because they're they're being sold this vision that, like, oh, well, this is going to be, this is going to be their liberation, is the ability to own uh, the means of production. Um, <laughs> but really, that's not the liberation at all. <laughs> it's actually their prison. <laughs> Sorry, but I'm the, sorry. There was so much. Go ahead, keep completely. Sorry, finish. sorry, sorry. Maybe that was a little too on the nose. I don't know. Man, but, it was amazing. It was perfect. But like, ultimately, it was the industry itself that was that had imprisoned them. Because once it all falls apart and they're able to transform back into be- creatures that can fly, and he's collapsed the world enough that mm. their parakeets' limited ability to fly allows them to escape. Well, now they're just. They're just little pretty birds. Like they're, they're just parakeets. To, they're just parakeets and they're allowed to go be free because they were never meant to be industrialized. They were never meant to be uh, abound by weapons and, yeah. and armies and, and order in the sense that we would, um, that we would uh, dictate it. I think at some point, and I didn't thank you very much because I didn't understand any of that until you just explained it to me. I think now, having heard your explanation on the parakeets, I would rewind to about 30 minutes ago when I did sort of my thesis on the film is about chaos and order. And here are the here I said there are two examples of how Mahito comes to realize that. And number one is his interactions with Heron, with the Heron. Number two is, you know, observing the sort of conflict with the white spirits and the fire and the pelicans. I would say number three is, you know, the downfall of the parakeets. You know, the grand uh, granduncle manipulates the parakeets as part of his, you know, 
control uh, scheme. And ultimately that makes their life worse, not better. And it mm-hmm. rejects their nature. And so uh, to elevate them or to manipulate them, uh, you know, it does not make create a net good. It creates a net negative, actually. Mm-hmm. And they become horrible and villainous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I think that would be maybe the third touchstone for Mahito, where he's able to say, no, look, none of this is right. None of this is working. And I'm mm-hmm. going to reject this whole model. And I'm going to be able to do so confidently because here's here's all the things that I have seen. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I do feel like that's like you said, like that's the next uh, branch of it. Another part of it that I definitely need to talk about before we close. Yes. Um, is the Closing relationship thoughts. that he has with the stepmother who is also his like, you know, um, yes. his aunt. And Shuichi. yeah, she's obviously young, but she looks a lot like his mother, but she's not his mother, but she wants to be his mother until she does it. And there's a really heart-wrenching scene when he gets to the mother to rescue her, or gets to um, this uh, the the stepmother to rescue her. Yes, and she basically tells him that she needs to go away and that she doesn't love him, and he is basically we're the worst, and yeah. just get away and get away from her. And, and I'm so sorry, but that was Natsuko, trying. not Shoichi. So I got to correct that real quick. Natsuko is her name. And it's really like terrible, heart wrenching scene, right? Like this, the like he's fought so hard to save her, even though he doesn't really like her, but he kind yes. of like feels like he needs to. Mm-hmm. But then during that scene, he goes from mother to or from like stepmother to like calling him, calling her his mother, right? And like hoping that that's enough, that his genuine love is enough to save her. Yeah, um, but he still gets um, uh, wrapped in parchment paper and and pushed away, um, and and he it's not enough uh, to save her in that moment, um, but then eventually, of course, he is able to uh, yeah. to save her, um, and it's also interesting that she enters the underworld um, voluntarily, and that's kind of what kicks off this whole thing. She mm. goes to the to the forest, um, to have like um, well, to give birth. Yeah, to but in the underworld, um, I don't know. If she has I, this idea that it will somehow empower the child or make her birth go smoothly or something. Right, that she needs. There's to some magical serve. property there. Right, that she's having a, a painful, like, uh, pregnancy. Yeah, it's not yeah, going it's well. Been a, it's been it's an unpleasant. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, um, and so she feels like she needs to go to the underworld to like have the baby, which has all sorts of really creepy, uh, oh, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, subtext implications. Yeah, implications. Um, and like you said, like that, that this is the only safe way to have the baby. Like so. Like, what exactly was her plan here? Was it to have the baby and leave the baby in the underworld and then she comes back out of it? And then it's like, what's going on here? Is right. it real? Is it that dark? Like, I don't want to make this like super dark here, but like, given the rest of the like dark undertones of the movie, it's certainly possible that like, that's yeah. part of the subtext. I wonder if, I mean, clearly the family has some understanding that there is some power. Mm-hmm. And clearly she would be aware of it because Himi went in when she was very small. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and the stepmothers, you know, the, the, the housekeeper characters, they know mm-hmm. about it. Right. So maybe it was just a last hope for her. Right. Maybe it was just, you know, this is, and, and they'd sort of do it off screen in the same way. I, you know, it could, because this stepmother character is very much portrayed as if you are Mahito observing her, mm-hmm. you know, you experience the range of her emotions, the dynamic of her emotions the strange unknown conditions of what it takes to uh, become pregnant and then have a child. Like we don't really understand what's happening as the audience members, because I don't think Mahito really understands as a child wouldn't. Yeah. I don't think so. I think all those things are, are, are obscure. I think, I think all those things are obscured either as a byproduct of the fact that it is a film with a lot going on or also as representative of the, mystery of that whole process to a child as it naturally would be right 
he does not um, know or, or or understand what is happening. Yeah, and he's trying to make sense of it. Yeah, it's also an interesting foil in the not necessarily foil, but it's also an interesting feather in the cap of my chaos versus order thesis, which is he attempts to distance himself from her. That does mm-hmm. not make the relationship better. He attempts right. to get close to her. Now mm-hmm. he cannot because she is feeling unwell. Mm-hmm. She is in grave danger. He attempts to help her. Cannot. Mm-hmm. He yep. attempts to help her by representing his deep love, which he has now found for her. Still mm-hmm. does not make a difference. So basically he has learned like my internal conditions do not have an external result on this other person. Mm-hmm. He's gone through all these different phases of attempting to connect with this new stepmother figure and none of them have worked. Mm-hmm. And I think that also contributes to his growing worldview that I don't, my role is not to change things. My role is not to have an impact, right? Mm-hmm. right. So I, I, that would be my interpretation of that through my sort of my chaos order lens that, that I'm, that I'm, that I've built here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I agree. Like he first has to like change himself internally, but then he also has to like form those bonds externally as well like it's not enough to say well i'm a different person now so now you must love me like right it's yeah like uh, he like there is a like a, an internal journey that has to happen and then an external journey where he has to take action to to create the 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 world that he desires and hope and trust that um not through controlling the other people's actions but by being uh, honest and true and vulnerable that they that if they are honest and true and vulnerable in return that they that that something good will happen and that they will get there in their own way right you know specifically that because none of his attempts or behaviors change the way that stepmother feels about him for better or for worse mm-hmm. he realizes that it is not that is not how you do it right yeah yeah exactly but to to save her, he has to learn to love her, and then for and then but that's only step one. Then for her to be saved, she has to be willing to be saved and also take agency and save herself and yeah. save her unborn child and yeah. save her new son. Like so, all of those things have to happen, and there's only the parts that he has control over which is his own actions and his own journey. But like he then has to trust that she will have her journey. So, that's you, would so say, you would say top three Ghibli film. Yes. Probably number would two. Would you say, would you say, uh, you know, over the two films that we have discussed today, audience mm-hmm. are experiencing them. Who knows on what timeline, but we've done Godzilla today. We've done boy in the Heron today. I, I, it sounds like you much preferred boy in the Heron, or at least that it was your favorite, not necessarily by a huge margin, but by a margin. Yes, that is that is my 2023 movie of the year. Really? Her. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's that's yeah. That's yes. yeah. Yeah. I um. I think I loved Godzilla more. I was sort of also blown away film. by it. But having discussed Boy and the Herod to such a level of detail, I really, really see the complexity and the subtlety of it in mm-hmm. a way that I didn't walking out of the theater. And so I'm really glad we had this conversation. And I think. Uh, I think I appreciate it much, much more now. Um, I think Godzilla just blew me away because I'd never really, I mean, I've never seen, I, I, I've i never been able to enjoy a monster movie. Like, mm-hmm. like not in that spectacle way. Like, right. usually I see a film that has big monsters and cool, crazy graphics and like city level scope. And it's also usually a bad movie. Right. Where the you best know. you can hope for is Pacific Rim, which is a perfectly fine functional action movie that's ridiculous and fun which is, you know that's what we strive for is perfectly fine <laughs> actually really uh quite like a uh, pacific rim but for very no. very very different reasons that's, okay like that just goes full on like camp entertainment like great like the the fun in the way that like the fun popcorn like marvel movies are fun you know right like not because i'm wanting a particularly a particularly compelling and engaging emotional like journey but because it's fucking cool to see robots punch monsters <laughs> and stay tuned for triumph episode all about pacific rim apparently i i but you know very 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 different experiences in the theaters i guess very no different kidding. goals <laughs> that's all i will it's, say about it 
It was an excellent December. I'm sort of embarrassed that we did our 2023 year review already, but it's done and here we are. And uh, this is a great, thank you for this conversation, Daniel, as always. It was a blast. I had a ton of fun and I, yeah, I agree. I feel like I've learned so much about both movies, uh, having uh, these conversations uh, with you. So audience, uh, we, as always, we hope you feel the same way. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you. Have a good one.